I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in our series, An Alternative Society. What does it mean to embody generosity as a church, as a family? Does God care about our hearts only or our wallets as well? Um, Philippians, before we read, is a letter written, as many of you know, by a guy called Paul. Most of the letter is actually something of a a thank you note. See, the context is this guy called Paul, who's this master apprentice of Jesus, is locked up in prison, we think in Rome at the time, um, because he went around the ancient world telling everyone that this executed rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth, had raised, been raised from the dead, and he was king of the world. He was Lord, which is a big no-no if there's another guy that says he's the ruler, that he's the king, and he's the Lord, and he's called Caesar. So Jesus is Lord, in Paul's context, was treason. Paul was eventually arrested as an enemy of the state, and then he was thrown into a Roman prison. In the Roman prison system, the prisoner, uh, their needs were not covered by the jailers or by the state. Stuff like food and water, even clothing, you've got to count on friends and family to bring you that stuff because they're not going to provide it. So Paul is locked up more than a thousand miles from Jerusalem, which is where the earliest community of Jewish disciples of Jesus had set up shop. And this is the ancient world, so travel is really long, really arduous, and dangerous. Paul is in the heart of the evil empire, far, far from those who knew and loved him. And he was, we think, at this point, starving to death and uh, dying from the elements in prison. And then, when things were going from bad to worse, Paul's locked up, he's starving, he's alone. Suddenly, a guy called Epaphroditus shows up. Epaphroditus belonged to a church that Paul had planted far away in a city called Philippi. Philippi is about 800 miles from Rome, and that trek took about six weeks, we think, on treacherous terrain. So Paul is nearing the brink of death. Epaphroditus journeys all the way to Paul, carrying food and supplies and money, which also means that Epaphroditus spent weeks on the road carrying all this stuff, large sums of money and goods, and thus endangering himself the whole time to thieves and murderers just to get there at all. But he makes it. Paul gets what he needs and is saved. So Deeply moved by this gesture, Paul sends a letter back to the church in Philippi, which is, among other things, a thank you letter. So let's look at Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now that word uh, rejoice can be translated as celebrate. In fact, another way of translating that line is, I am having a great celebration in the Lord. And the word renewed is actually a botanical metaphor. He's sort of painting this word picture of like a budding flower in spring. All that to say, Paul's opening lines are uh, essentially amount to in the bleak winter of his life. The generosity of the Philippians was like the thaw. It was like hope. It was like spring. And he goes on, Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, the text doesn't say why the Philippians didn't have a chance to express their concern for Paul. It could have been their own poverty. It could have been that Paul was just so far away. Who knows? But they wanted to and couldn't until now. Whatever it was finally changed. The church in Philippi could express their concern with money, food, provision for Paul. And Paul is celebrating from within his prison cell. 
He goes on to say in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, starving to death in prison. So I'd call that need. Sounds like a pretty clear case of need. You're not celebrating because you were in need and now you're not in need. That doesn't make any sense. Why the party? He goes on. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, don't read that as like Paul being suddenly rude or ungrateful. He's not turning his nose up at their gifts. Remember, he just said he's celebrating. This strange kind of paradoxical train of thought, I was not in need when I was in need, becomes a teaching moment where Paul, master apprentice of Jesus, imparts something profound. He says that though he was in real circumstantial need, like he's starving to death, he already had everything he truly needed in Jesus. And because of that, he had learned to be content, even though he was starving to death in jail. Can you imagine such a thing? It's not an idea that Paul invented. Arguably, the most famous psalm of all time begins with the line, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore what? Yeah, I shall not want or I lack nothing. Jesus famously taught his disciples, don't worry about anything. That's an actual teaching from Jesus. Don't worry about anything. How are you on that so far, by the way? <laughs> uh, Y'all haven't mastered that? Not worrying yet? Man, y'all need some spiritual formation. I've, I got that one a long time ago. Don't worry about anything. Easy. I'm being sarcastic. I worry all the time. Paul goes on in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, obviously, and I know what it is to have plenty. He wasn't always in jail. There were times where everything was right there where he needed it. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, that English word secret is actually translated from a Greek word that also gets used in ancient Eastern mystery religions, the kind of uh, spiritualities that required some kind of initiation ritual to gain some secret spiritual knowledge. The closest thing we have around now would be something like Scientology, where members pay money to ascend a ranking system before they can learn the terrible truth about space alien ghosts and stuff like that. So here, Paul is almost parodying that idea of like a secret spiritual enlightenment, but it isn't about some kind of initiation ritual where you unlock the cosmos or open your third eye. It's just about being content. The riddle that everyone wants to solve, Paul says, yeah, I've got that one down. I'm satisfied. I lack nothing. This is the universal human predicament, by the way, the ever-present craving for contentment, and one that continues to escape the needy grasp of most human beings on earth, whether their needs are met or not. Think about it. Why do people like Anthony Bourdain or Kurt Cobain or David Foster Wallace, what do they have in common? Their dreams had come true, rags to riches, success, acclaim, accomplishment, and they all found just being alive at all so unforgivably unpleasant that they killed themselves. How many of us can say, I am fully truly content, not just in some kind of abstract spiritual sense, but in my own waking felt reality, my experience of life, I lack nothing. I'm good. There's no missing piece, nothing that I'm waiting on to feel like I have enough and I am enough. The big blue genie, you know, erupts from the little golden lamp and says, what'll it be? Anything, anything at all. And you say, I'm actually good. Thanks. 
If we're honest, I think all of us would admit that we still have stuff on our list. Small things, big things, even the rich and famous are still searching for something. And Paul is saying, not me. I've figured out how to do that. I'm already there. I'm not partying because I wasn't content when I was starving to death in prison, and now I am content because I have food and clothes and whatnot. He's saying, I was actually fine. That's not what the party is about. And lest anyone argue, oh, well, easy for him to say. Remember, he's in jail. He's on the brink of death by starvation and exposure. He's been beaten by soldiers. He's been run out of cities. He's been on trial. He's been poor, persecuted. He's seen church plants rise and fall. He's had friends come to faith and leave their faith behind. Elsewhere, Paul has said that he's been treated like the scum of the earth. He is, I think, in the best possible position to teach people like us about what it means to be content no matter the circumstances. So take note of a few things before we move on. First, you learn from this story that contentment is something you learn. Paul writes, I have learned the secret. It doesn't simply occur to you. And it wasn't even instantaneously imparted by God's Spirit. He had to learn to be content, meaning contentment is unnatural. It's not the default setting of human beings. When our lives overflow with reasons to be satisfied, we willingly overlook them all to instead focus on that which we do not have, and we allow what's missing to dictate our satisfaction or lack thereof. That's what human beings do. So contentment is not natural, but it can be learned. And secondly, if you're taking notes, true contentment is not contingent on outside circumstances. Most of us believe, either deep down or right there on the surface, that when we have you fill in the blank, then we'll be all set. A better job can be great. Even things like more money or more stuff can be fun in the short term or practical in some sense, don't get me wrong, but they will not satisfy the soul because they can all be taken from you. And Paul's argument is for vesting our contentment in that which does not change, in him who cannot be taken from us, or in the language of Jesus, store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Or another way of interpreting that is store up for treasures where God is, not where people, where uh, perishing things are. And he goes on in verse 13, how can he do this? How can he pull this off? I can do all this in him who gives me strength. Man, that quote sounds amazing. If you lift this verse right out of its context, you can hang it on the wall and quote it to stir people up. You can encourage someone on a bad day. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You can win the game. You can face your big meeting. You can endure your stressful week. And that's not all wrong. Don't get me wrong. But in context, Paul is specifically saying that he can be content whether he has money and food or not. So quoting this verse out of its context isn't necessarily some terrible heresy, but the irony is that often we love the idea of Jesus helping us win a game or get through a hard work week, but we've yet to really believe that Jesus can teach us to be content with no money and no stuff. And not believing that is a kind of heresy. We tend to believe that self-sufficiency is the secret to contentment. 
Meaning when we have enough money, when we have enough stuff, when we're not scraping by, when we're comfortable, when we don't depend on other people, then we can be content. That's where contentment comes from. Problem is, all of human history is a case study in the fact that this never works. And really, Paul's need was only one reason why the gift from the church in Philippi was so important. So keep reading in verse 14. It was good of you, Paul says to the church in Philippi, to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, this is the uh, region near Philippi, meaning right after Paul left them, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. And even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So Paul is puffing, he's celebrating the church in Philippi, specifically because they are mature in an area where many other churches were lacking generosity. Here in Philippians, Paul is like heaping praise on these people in the church. He's saying, listen, I have traveled all over the empire and back already. I've planted church after church after church, and you guys get it. And he goes on. Look at Philippians 4, verse 17. It's not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've already received full payment. I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to who? God. Which is, again, a weird thing to say. It wasn't the gift for Paul. Remember that for later. He goes on in verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Throughout the New Testament, disciples of Jesus teach and embody the practice of giving finances to sustain the church and for the work of the kingdom throughout the world. Now, many of you, I know, probably have a bad taste in your mouth, as it were, when it comes to the idea of church and money. Uh, if you're younger than 35 or so, statistically speaking, you've probably seen a lot of corruption, even if only from afar. Maybe you've had a bad experience personally, and you're skeptical of authority. And even if you are a model church goer, something in you tenses at the mention of money in church by a pastor. And yet here we are. I realize all that. I don't take any of that for granted. But if I may, once again, I do have to point out that, you know, evil megachurch pastor buys private jet makes a great headline to feed our hungry cynicism. That's the kind of awful stuff we want to click on. They know it, so they provide it. It's a for-profit business. You know how that goes. On the other hand, small town church quietly practices generosity and gets by is not an entertaining headline. And there are far more instances of quiet faithfulness, but they just don't make great Netflix docuseries. So I am asking you, if you're new and visiting, by the way, you're like, well, this is getting personal. This is, you know, kind of inside house talk. Feel free to, well, don't tune me out. No, stay, stay with me. Pay attention. Um, I'm asking you, though, all of you to suspend judgment. Bear with me for the next few minutes. Do your best to hear me out as we ask ourselves, as disciples of Jesus and as Van City Church, what is giving? Let's start with this one. In the worldview of the Bible, giving is good and God made it up. The idea of individuals within the family of God contributing their own resources 
for the sake of the family as an act of worship unto God himself stretches all the way back into the Old Testament and then into the church of Jesus and across centuries of the Christian movement and all traditions all over the world. In tonight's text, Paul writes, it was good of you to share. It's good to give because giving emulates God. God is generous. God gives. And maybe you hear God is generous and you think of like a stoic, wealthy, powerful person who sees fit to bestow blessing on those below him who are nipping at his heels for resources. It's like, kind of like, you know, Jeff Bezos putting five bucks in a bell ringer's bucket. It amounts to nothing because he's got everything. But the biblical idea that God is generous is about God's innate state of being. It's his personhood. It's his character. It's not something he puts on as a kind gesture. We breathe God's oxygen. And more than that, we are loved by God. He gives us himself. And though we deliberately put ourselves at a distance from God, we can be, through no effort of our own, reconciled to God, known by Him, and know Him in the process by the work that He does on our behalf and for our sake and even at His expense. We can be healed and restored. We can be given hope in a future. We can be adopted into God's family all because God is generous. It's just who he is. God does not qualify his generosity, and he does not withhold his giving. James in the New Testament even says, and I quote, God gives generously to all without finding fault. That is just who he is. And when you emulate God's generosity, you tap into the character of God, and you can know him better, and you can draw nearer to him in intimacy and be changed as a result. Not because God won't come close to you unless you give money, but because when you know someone better, you stand to be closer to them. And more than that, when you tap into God's generosity, you can also tap into God's contentment. God is content. He does not worry. Jesus didn't worry about anything. Giving is one way that God teaches us what it means to lack nothing. The secret. It's how we, like Paul, learn to be content. And there it is. How did Paul learn contentment? Through generosity. Giving is God's cure for greed the cure to the ever-elusive more, the cure for fear and anxiety, the fretful clamoring for comfort and security. And please listen, don't hear this as, oh, okay, just a general disposition of kindness and generosity. This is specifically about money and resources. Money in the scriptures has a powerful hold on the life and even souls of human beings for better or for worse. Jesus himself taught this so that his disciples went around telling other people that this is what he said. The Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, of course, few of us, if we're being honest, few of us functionally believe that. And fewer still live that way, but there it is. 
And this idea is so crucial to Paul's understanding of how a church functions. Remember his language from Philippians that we just read. It was good of you to share in my troubles, uh, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia. Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. So Paul, in this paradigm, is the church leader. Uh, He's the planter or the pastor or the overseer or elder. In his mind, there is a partnership between himself and the people of the church through giving. We're in this together. We make sacrifices. We share. And this isn't about profit and loss or developing a business or a brand. This is about the kingdom of God. We are in this together or it does not work. The leaders of this church, not just me, all the leaders give much of their lives to teaching the way of Jesus, working to guide and shepherd and serve others in the ways of Jesus, not perfectly by any means, you guys know that, but that's why we are here. And think specifically of like the non-staff leaders working within limited time and resources, our deacons, for example. If you think about people like Taylor and Lexi who are caring for our kids and our teenagers who are working tirelessly to create and steward an environment where they, our kids and teenagers, can learn to follow Jesus. They don't get paid, but it takes money to buy things like curriculum and supplies and all the way down the list, week in and week out. When you give to the church, to this church in particular, you are saying those things matter to us. This family matters to us. And when you don't, you are saying the opposite. It is not a payment for goods and services. It's generosity. Paul says, it was good of you to share with me. And when that happens, the kingdom of God grows and spreads. It's just practical. Think about it. In order to do all this, meaning to be able to meet in this building and drink apple cider and be able to compensate Cameron, for example, so he can afford to pay rent and feed his family while he devotes himself to the work of heading up all of our Van City communities, uh, or because I work here, um, because I'm on staff, I get to focus the majority of my 40-hour work week on studying and writing for these teachings uh, with time left over to work with our other leaders and help steer the vision of our church and meet and sit with people and pastor them. I couldn't do half of that if I also worked at Fred Meyer to pay my bills and volunteer this time that I had left over to the church. Even things that seem like on the, on the outside, like frivolities, are actually meaningful to us, like our ability to serve coffee and snacks and create a welcoming, hospitable environment for us to share together as a family. Or extra things that we do as a church, like the annual men's trip, right? Right, guys? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the men's trip, or women's dinners and prayer nights, or kids' Christmas parties that are coming up, or the, even the thing that we have on Wednesday, like a midweek lecture, all of that Every single thing requires finances to do. They just do. And because of those things, the little details and the big ones, they all create space for all the stories of wonderful things that have happened in this little family across the last seven years and more and on into the next seven, God willing, and the next seven after that. Now, look, you and I already know this place, like any church, isn't perfect. And we have been through hard seasons together. But it's not all pain and struggling. In fact, from my perspective anyway, it's been a blast. It's been beautiful. And that's coming from me, your resident goth pessimist. (laughs) So many of us have, I know, have formed meaningful friendships in this place. And our kids are growing up in this church. And we are learning about Jesus here in meaningful ways. We've 
heard God in this place. And through these people, people have found Jesus for the first time or found him again when they were estranged from him. This has been a place where people have cared for one another and met needs and sacrificed for each other. We've held one another in tragedy and we've celebrated healing and breakthrough and marriages and kids being born and kids being born and kids being born. And ever since the church began, We've been able to set aside 10% of every single dollar that comes into the church for justice causes, both locally and internationally. We, our tiny little church, has been able to give tens of thousands of dollars to orphanages, refugee care, justice causes, food banks, local school lunch initiatives, money that wouldn't have been donated to those places otherwise. Think about that, because we are a church. And it's easy to get all romantic and pretend like, oh, that doesn't actually require any money at all, that God, only, he only cares about our hearts and not our wallets, but that's not an idea shared by Paul or the authors of the New Testament. We have been made so cynical by a culture of scandal that we like to pretend the best, most beautiful stuff requires no money at all, but the beauty of Jesus' teaching is that he taught that we assign true value to something by the way we spend our money. Jesus taught the way you spend your money reveals what's in your heart. And it takes time and work and electric bills and rent and salaries and guitar strings and kids' curriculum and coffee, amen, and to make a church run, to do the things that we do, even as our little church. That's not bad. It's just the way that it is. But when you share with the church in the matter of giving and receiving, you are contributing to all those stories, big and small. When you give you contribute to the church, and the church happens. But remember, it's not just the pragmatic aspect of the thing. Paul even writes, I don't need your money, which is a weird thing to say. What I want is for more to be credited to your account, for you to grow and have joy and be free and know what I already know, the secret to being content. Now, the something called the prosperity gospel, which was once kind of famous among televangelists, the kind of Benny Hens and Joel Osteens and the like, and then continues to live and thrive. Now more so amongst like celebrity megachurch pastors and certain wings of the uh, new charismatic movement. The prosperity gospel argues God actually wants you to be rich. And if you give to God, he gives back to you financially. Um, but, you know, you read these stories and you're like, what did Paul get for his giving to God? Prison, for one, and ultimately execution as well. The idea that God will give you stuff if you give is not at all what Paul is getting at when he says more will be credited to your account. For one, Paul himself is on the brink of starvation in prison. And even when he gets these resources, he's still in prison. He's given his life for God, as it, and he is as impoverished as it gets. But Paul does mean that there is something in it for you when you give. He's just not talking about more money and stuff. What's in it for you is actually much, much better. You will grow and mature and tap into the heart of God as you battle and beat down greed. You will experience true contentment that cannot be taken from you because it finds its source in the Creator God. Those are all good things for you. But the problem is, if we're honest, we think more money would be better. And the only way to learn what's actually true, to experience what's actually true, is practice. So giving should be something that we practice, and giving should be generous. 
It overflows from God. It overflows from our gratitude to God, a genuine desire that we allow God's spirit to cultivate within us over time, meaning giving should not be stingy. It should not be reluctant. Not my words. These are all from the New Testament. It should, be an ins- it should not be an insignificant portion of what you have, not like a little off the top that you'd never notice either way. It should be generous out of an overflow of your appreciation for what God is doing in and through you and this family. And notice, I keep using that language, giving. Now, if you've been around church for more than a minute, you've likely heard tell of a concept called tithing. The tithe was a Hebrew word that literally means 10%. It was an ancient spiritual art form dating all the way back to Abraham in which God's people willingly gave 10% of their income and resources back to God as an act of worship. So when I was a kid, I got an allowance. It was a dollar every week, a dollar in my hand, uh, in dimes, and one of those dimes went plink in the collection plate passed around on Sunday because thankfully my parents uh, taught me the art of tithing. And by taught me, I mean they made me do it. And by the grace of God, I was taught this as a boy and it is something that I carried on to adulthood and to this day. I get to begin with 10% out of every paycheck and give it to the church. And I do every month, which is sort of funny. Church puts money in my bank account and then I put some of it back in the church's bank account. But you get the idea. And that 10% from my paycheck is not all I give. The church is not the only place to which I give, but I at least begin there with that ancient art form, 10% every single paycheck right here at Devan City Church. And I don't say this to sound... Um, self-righteous, because I was taught this. This is not something I deduced on my own. I didn't just decide one day that I was going to give a dime off of my measly dollar. But I'm grateful I have learned that the more you make, the more you have, and the harder it is to give part of it away. It's 10%, but giving a dime is a lot easier than giving a dollar or hundreds of dollars, or thousands of dollars. And I can't tell you how often I've heard people say things like, well, I'm just waiting to get a better job, and then I'll give. Or when I have a little extra money, then I'll give, or whatever it might be. But there will always be an excuse to not start giving, and it will never get any easier to start. People misunderstand the idea of tithing by assuming that they are giving God 10% of their money. You are not. God is letting you keep 90% of his money, everything, the air in your lungs, everything you have, your body, according to the scriptures, is all God's, including your finances and whatever they could buy you. Even you, in the theology of the scriptures, are not your own. And when we understand that, little by little, we become freed up to stop worrying about all our stuff and start enjoying God's stuff that he so generously gives. God doesn't need any money. He wants to set you free from worry and greed, and he's smart enough to grow the kingdom in the process. You know, interestingly, in the New Testament, the language shifts from tithing to generosity. This is important for us because, please listen to me on this, for the vast majority of us, 10% is not generous, self-sacrificial giving. It isn't for me, honestly, and not in a Mr. Moneybags kind of way. I've spent the vast majority of my entire adult life working full-time jobs and living at or below the poverty line in whatever city I've lived in. And even then, a tithe typically kind of just disappears from my account, and I don't feel a thing. 
It doesn't change me because I don't even notice it. I get a little receipt from PushPay, which is the app we use for giving, and then I archive it, click, <laughs> it goes to my email archive. So my wife Abby and I, we need to give more, and we do. There are all kinds of ways to do that. We budget for generosity after our tithe, which you can do by sponsoring a kid through Compassion International. We actually have... Um, uh, catalogs for Christmas gifts through Compassion and other ways to sponsor children. You could donate to justice causes, or you can just buy someone dinner. All kinds of things that you can do to embrace a lifestyle of giving. Because even if you are below America's poverty line, you still make up the wealthiest 10% of the human population. And I say that not as guilt at all, but as perspective. It's pretty easy to give painlessly. And we should at least do that because most of us have more than we need but less than we want. So dispensing with excess is hardly noteworthy. You don't even realize it's happening even if you go through with the process and you can automate it. It's just something that becomes easy to ignore or that has no effect on you. And the old expression, it sounds really tough, but I have found it in my own life to be theologically helpful to give until it hurts. Or put another way, a less hardcore sounding way, if you like, find ways to actually experience your giving. Giving should cost you something. And if this seems at all heavy-handed, remember, our paradigm for giving is based on whom? Jesus. God in Jesus teaches us the true depth of the Father's willingness to give until it hurts. So, Costly generosity isn't about being hardcore for the sake of being hardcore. It's about tapping into the heart of God and discovering what He already knows so well, disciplining ourselves to feel generosity so that we can be shaped by it. Think of Paul's language in verse 18. They are, these gifts, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to who? God meaning you are not giving ultimately to Paul or to Van City or to me or Cam or Levi. It is a sacrifice pleasing to God. I've known people across my years at this church and other churches who withheld giving because they might have been upset with the choice the church made or, or maybe they were mad at one of its leaders or something. But ultimately, they were actually withholding from God. And Paul's is a powerful metaphor. See, in ancient Israel, Jews would come to the temple to make sacrifices, uh, and the livestock and the crops they were offered were kind of akin to their currency. So the sacrifice was, in essence, a gift to God. But a percentage was set aside for the priests who worked at the temple every single day to enable this place of worship to function in the first place. And that was a system that God set in place, not greedy priests. So even though the gift provided a wage for the temple priest so that they could be there at all, it was a gift intended for and received by God. So Paul is picking up on all that, saying the same is true of the church of Jesus. The act of giving to God is a gesture of trust in God as the ultimate provider. You can give back to God because he's the one who's going to take care of you anyway. And please hear this as well. When you decline to practice generosity, that shapes you too. And you learn to see what you have as never enough, to always want just a little bit more, or to believe the lie that if you just had X, then you'd be all set. 
And you can, in a certain sense, sort of detach yourself from the church family. It's weird. You know, you'd think that, that amongst those throwing in money to keep the church going, everyone could sort of get all entitled and be like, my tax dollars pay for this or, you know, that kind of thing. And that probably happens, I guess. But in my personal experience, more often, the person consistently giving is somehow counterintuitively humbled by the process. And they learn to see the church as theirs as well. Not a service provided to a consumer, but as a family that needs everyone to pitch in. Because when you step into giving and you practice it, and more and more you start to see God's generosity everywhere, and you're grateful for it. Because you are made in God's image, and God is generous. He gives. When you are not generous... When you do not give, you distort God's image in you and you become more and more inclined to see all of God's generosity as not good enough. But when you tap into God's heart, you become overwhelmed by the ever-present generosity of God. Those of you who give have already begun to learn this and some of you know it well. And you're inclined to worship in reciprocation by giving. Giving is an act of worship. Now, I realize this sounds like a sappy analogy, but have you ever been given a gift so thoughtful, so meaningful, that your immediate, genuine reaction was to, without saying anything at all, to just embrace the gift giver? Or or have you seen children on Christmas morning so delighted by the extravagance of their parents' generosity that they they lose any sense of composure even for kids, you know, and they shout and they dance and they run in place and they scream? Have you ever wanted so badly to find the perfect, most meaningful gift for someone you love, not for any sense of social pressure or desire to impress or or for any practical usefulness that the gift might hold, but because you realize this is an opportunity to express with a simple gesture how much that person means to you. Giving is worship. I could keep all my money for myself, but I won't. I give it to God for the sake of my family and to further the kingdom. Thus, the final line in our teaching text tonight reads, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, whew, deep breath. We're almost done. But before we end, um, I want to speak candidly, if I may, about our church. For the last few weeks, we've been in our annual vision series, which is a time for us to kind of circle up and talk about the year and uh, reflect on where we've been and prayerfully approach another year as a church. Now, often when we talk about giving on a given Sunday, and when we offer the church update on the budget, we'll show this graph. That um, horizontal red line represents our budget, and those vertical black bars represent the giving month to month. We have consistently, throughout the years, consulted other trustworthy churches, uh, mentors, other church planters, uh, leaders, when we make financial decisions. When we first started this thing, and it was just me and Scott Barguer, we both acknowledged, he's an accountant. And we're like, we don't know what this is. How do you make a church budget? So we relied on the wisdom of other people. Um, Even uh, up until recent years, we've had some leaders from Bridgetown Churches, which, which is the church that planted ours, walk us through reorganizing the budget over the last couple of years so that we can make sure we're making every decision as best as we can um, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We've worked very hard as a church to practice frugality, 
to exercise prayerful caution and discernment on every little line item on the spreadsheet that becomes our budget each fiscal year. We've given 10% of the church's income year after year to justice causes here in the city and around the world. We even have an internal committee that does not work for the church, but who makes decisions about our salaries. Uh, We do this to protect us from internal corruption, meaning I cannot make any decisions about what I or anyone else at Vance City gets paid. Um, We have overseers on our team who aren't paid by the church so that trustworthy leaders with no possible financial incentive are also making the major decisions that lead our church forward. Now, all that to say, we're really, really trying. Um, And no, we're not perfect. I am sure that we've made mistakes. We're people after all, but we are working all the time to seek counsel, protect integrity, accept the wisdom from other people who have been further than we are so that we handle God's money and God's church with integrity. Now, that red line represents our budget. It's the result of all that thinking and strategizing and the wisdom and counsel of other more experienced leaders and advisors outside our church and trustworthy non-paid leaders within the church. Now, on top of all that, we then budget at a deficit meaning even lower than what we officially need. So here's a bummer. If you consider the amount of people in Van City communities and 10% of the median income in Vancouver, if you factor in the variable that some people and families obviously will make and give more than that, some will make and give less than that, a church of our size if it gives in a healthy, consistent way, beginning at the baseline 10% wisdom of tithing, Uh, a church of our size can and should make this budget every month and every year. Unfortunately, we did not make budget. Um, I guess we only made budget three out of the 12 months of the last year. In fact, the only reason that we ended this year in the black, which is a good thing, um, is because, as Cam mentioned last week, other generous donors outside of Van City, and in many cases outside of Washington State, were called by God to give and support us, and then they were obedient to that call. And that's a beautiful, incredible thing. It really is. It's a picture of the church, you know, with the capital C, caring for one another by the Spirit's direction, and really a portrait of God's generosity to us as a church. If they hadn't done that, we would not have made it. But it also reveals a weakness within the family, Every family has weaknesses. This is one of ours. Um, And we shouldn't like berate ourselves or shame ourselves over it, but we also can't really afford to simply shrug our shoulders and make our peace with it. If we do, all of this eventually comes to an end. And it's happened to a lot of churches, a lot of good churches. And we have, unfortunately, once again, arrived at the point where our leadership um, has to begin discussing budget cuts for the upcoming year. There's this uh, idiom Uh, No single raindrop ever feels responsible for the flood. I I suspect that this unfortunate truth often permeates the way that we think about giving. Maybe you think that whether or not you give or not is ultimately inconsequential. It just isn't true. And don't even look at that the way, uh, or don't even look at it that way first and foremost, that, man, it really hinges on you. Think of the whole thing in terms of obedience and spiritual formation, Because what Jesus said is true. We believe it. The way you spend your money reveals what's actually important to you. Thus, according to Jesus, you should be able to look at a graph like that and actually see how much a church matters to its family. So, to end, I have a couple of humble requests, if I may. The first is to give 
Uh, it's really that simple. And please listen to me when I say this. I know this from my own experience and from the stories of dozens of other people. If you place a qualification before your giving, I'm going to start giving when, you're probably setting yourself up to never give. If you say to yourself, I'll give when my income hits this number, or I'll give when I'm sure the church deserves it, that's not going to happen, trust me. Or I'll, I'll give when I have time to get more organized and write up a more thorough line-by-line -line budget. You, you'll probably make a new qualifier. I'm saying this from experience. And then a new one, and a new one. In essence, I'll be obedient to Jesus later. The secret, believe it or not, is to simply begin. A detailed budget is fantastic. You should have one, by the way, but don't wait for one to start giving. Don't wait for financial excess or don't even wait for more stability because both are fleeting and your giving, like prayer or worship, can't be contingent on things beyond your control. Like any other spiritual discipline, you will likely never be in every single way prepared before you begin. You just have to start somewhere. Now, obviously, mature giving flourishes within a lifestyle of spiritual formation around money in its entirety, which is a whole other conversation and teaching. Remember, uh, next Wednesday night, I'm giving a lecture about exactly that thing. So please come if you want to ha keep having this conversation about what it means to be formed by your spending. But to get started, begin with 10%, the ancient wisdom of the tithe. Sign up for automated recurring payments through the PushPay app, whatever works. But start with 10%, tithing as an ancient art form, and grow into radical generosity as you practice from every single paycheck. But don't stop there. Ask God regularly and consistently as an individual or as a family with your spouse, with your family together. Ask God regularly, what now, God? More? Where do I give? How much? How often? To whom? And what cause is in need of my support? Direct me with my finances. Yes, this is absolutely about the future and stability of this particular church, but it's also about your discipleship to Jesus. And then give consistently, not when you've determined there's enough excess to take a little off the top. Giving is not tipping, by the way. Don't treat giving like yard work, you know, that annoying thing that you're supposed to do, and eventually you'll probably do it in haste after forgetting it or avoiding it for weeks and infrequently and chaotically. Schedule it. Implement the schedule with every single paycheck or on the same date every month. Give consistently. And then finally, as an aside for you parents in the room, teach your kids about giving now and demonstrate giving for them. If your kid has an allowance, if you do that as a family, make giving a part of that exchange. Give together. Bring in, some families are already doing this at Van City. They bring their finances together, the parents and the kids. Put it in the black box back there or you can use the app, whatever works. But teach your kids what it means to give. Now, I know that it's probably easy to assume that I'm up here in arms about Van City's bottom line because my paycheck depends on it. And yeah, I guess my family would be bummed if I lost my job and everything. But honestly, honestly, I, can, I believe I can say this with integrity before God, that part of it doesn't really worry me all that much, for better or for worse. I don't know if that's immaturity or short-sightedness or spiritual formation. I'm, I'm sure that we'd figure something out. And I've had to ask myself, honestly, kind of like this over the years of our church, if our church, like so many other churches, closed its doors one final Sunday because of finances, what would I do? And I think that I realize, you know, I would thank God for these years, and then I would ask him, what's next? 
But I don't want that to be our story. I've learned to see this like every other aspect of our discipleship and the way that we grow in it. I want to see a community of people, and it's fine with me if that community's small, it's fine with me if it's mostly young, whatever, but a community of people who are learning how to pray, learning how to hear God's voice and prophesy, learning how to read and understand the scriptures, learning to truly love God and love one another, and learning how to give themselves away learning how to embody radical generosity. And I can already tell so many amazing stories about men and women here, communities, families who have walked with Jesus into more healing and freedom, who have, by the grace of God, learned and matured and are walking faithfully with Jesus. I'm one of them. I want this to be part of our story as well. We learned to be generous together. I don't want a handful of generous people to carry the church. I want all of us, the very poorest among us, learn the very paradoxical freedom of giving and to say together across the financial, socioeconomic spectrum, we can do all this through him who gives us strength. So let's pray and ask God's spirit to empower us to learn how to practice the way of Jesus through giving of finances. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.